The sermon scripture for today comes from Jude. I will be reading verses 1 through 4 and 20 through 23 from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. The word of the Lord. Good morning. You remember that old uh, fairy tale, that old folk tale about Chicken Little? There's wildly different versions of the story, uh, as there are with many of these, but in the most, some of the most well-known versions, Chicken Little is sitting under a tree and an acorn falls on his head and naturally he assumes because of that that the sky must be falling. And so he gets up, right, frantically sets off to share the news with the king. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Along the way, he meets some of his friends, some of the other animals, uh, Henny Penny, Goosey Lucy, and the rest. And they take up Chicken Little's cause. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. And in a line they go. They're on their way to the king to share the news. Well, finally, they come across Foxy Loxy. And the story takes a dark turn, doesn't it? Uh, The fox pretends to be an ally right with them, joining in the cause, and says, hey, I'll take you to the king. But he instead instead takes them to his own house, where Foxy Loxy and all his fox babies eat Chicken Little and all of Chicken Little's friends. So first off, what's going on with these old fairy tales? You ever stop to wonder that? You see these old, early 19th century photos, no one's smiling, they're all miserable. I think there's a connection here. (laughs) But the moral of this story is up for debate. Usually it's something like, uh, be courageous when things uh, seem scary. Don't panic, right? And that's, that's good advice. We shouldn't worry about the acorns that are falling on our heads, but you know, you can't help wondering as you hear that story, but what about the foxes? What about the foxy loxies, right, that are, that are out for us, that are out to eat us? See, in the story, at least in this version, Chicken Little became so focused on the wrong thing, he missed the real danger. 
At least he set out to tell the king, which, hey, that makes for good preaching, doesn't it? Right? He set out to tell the king. These old fairy tales can be horrifying and disturbing, but some of them make for good sermon illustrations. So here we go. Uh, The king is the one to turn to, right? To sort out our fears, our concerns, the dangers around us, because our world, like Chicken Littles, is pretty messed up. Uh, We don't want to sugarcoat things. We want to be honest. Uh, There's plenty out there to keep us up at night. But we don't want to be like Chicken Little and get fixated on the wrong danger and then fall into the real trap. Well, this short letter of Jude speaks right to this need. Jude gives us a very honest look at the dangers around us. But instead of fear-mongering, he takes us to the king, in a sense, to sort this out. This morning we begin a short three-week series we're calling The Greatness of the Least of These. We're looking at three of the shortest books in the Bible, which are often easy for us to overlook, but they're inspired by God, and they're written for God's people, and they're timely for us today. And this short epistle of Jude is certainly no exception. Because how do we respond as Christians when the world seems so twisted, when The truth is under attack when it seems God's people are under attack. What do we do? Do we just ignore the problem? Do we run around screaming and panicking? Do we fight fire with fire and go out and try to attack the foxy loxies of the world? There are very real dangers around us, as Jude will tell us in no uncertain terms. If you've ever struggled to know how to respond Christianly, to all these dangers. I know I have. If you've ever struggled to know how to respond, this book is for us. So let's together bring our fears, let's bring our concerns, let's bring these very real dangers that are around us to Christ this morning and and hear his word for us today. Let's pray as we turn to this book. Father, thank you for this short but powerful epistle of Jude. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, that you would grow us, that you would transform us together more and more into the image of your Son. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. So turn to the book of Jude if you have your Bible. It's an easy one to find. If you don't know already, it's right before uh, the last book in the New Testament, Revelation. It's tucked in there. It's just one short chapter. And we're going to start in verse 1. And just kind of work our way through. So I hope you can clear your schedule uh, for the rest of the day. We're just going to kind of work our way through. Hope you don't mind. But let's start in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so right up front, Jude identifies himself as the author. Now, there's a few different Judes in this uh, period in the early church that this could be, but the traditional view of who the author is, I think, is still really the best. It makes the most sense. This Jude is the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of James, the same James who wrote the epistle of James. Now, Jude calls himself here the brother of James, but it's interesting he doesn't just come out and say, and also the brother of Jesus. Why wouldn't he do that? you think most of us would put that pretty high on our resume, right? Well, he doesn't. Why? Um, Rather than flaunt his status, his family connection to Christ himself, he's saying, no, no, I'm like all believers with you. I am ultimately a servant, a slave of Christ. 
Remember, Jesus' siblings didn't come to faith. They didn't even believe until after the resurrection. And Jude is putting himself on the same plane as all of us, humble servants of Christ. He doesn't address his readers by name. He uses descriptions that apply to all believers. Look at the words. He says, to those called, loved, and kept. Now watch out. Jude loves his sets of three. They're all through this short letter, so look for those. Here's the first. Uh, Called, loved, and kept. Our status is secure, Jude is saying. We've been called to faith in Christ by God the Father. That calling is characterized by God's love for us and that we are kept for Christ. In other words, we are secure in Him while we wait for His return. This is crucial for us to see at the beginning of this letter as it grounds us for what he's about to say. Some of the more challenging things, some of the more hard truths he's about to say, the harsh realities and dangers that are around us. But this truth up front grounds us because it tells us that no matter what we might face, we are kept for Christ until that coming day. God's not going to forget about us. God's not going to forsake us no matter how hard things get. And why is he writing this letter? Well, he tells us right out clearly in verse 3. Look there. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Did you notice in verse 3 that this letter is not the one Jude set out to write? Uh, He was eager, in fact, he says, to write a very different letter, one just expounding the good news of the salvation that we share in Christ. That's what he wanted to write about, but the Holy Spirit directed him in a different, different way. He sensed an urgent need instead to write this letter, uh, the hard truth about the dangers that this church faced. This is important, again, for us to note. What follows comes from a place of pastoral care. The tone of this letter, overall the big picture, is love for this church. Again, he would personally rather have written something else, but the urgent need is what we have here in the text. Now, Jude doesn't pull any punches. He talks about coming judgment on those who have turned against God. He talks about our need to to fight for the truth. These are not always popular topics in our culture, and Jude himself, again, didn't want to even talk about this, but it didn't mean it didn't need to be said. And sadly, this message of Jude is just as urgent today. So Jude's sense of urgency, how he begins this letter, should make us sit up a little straighter in our seats, should make us pay attention. What was the urgent need that Jude had to change what he was going to write about? So let's resist the temptation to ignore what Jude says or to reject it outright just because it's unpopular or makes us uncomfortable. So he says he's appealing to the church to contend for the faith. The faith, that's the body of belief that's been uh, passed on by the apostles themselves. This faith, he says, once delivered, once for all, meaning it was not added to uh, or altered. It came through the apostles and it's been delivered. It's been entrusted to the saints, the church. 
Therefore, it's our responsibility, he says, to contend for it. A little bit later in our service, we're going to recite an ancient statement of faith in keeping with Jude's point here. The faith is what we're contending for. Now, the word contend was used in ancient Greek uh, to describe athletic contests in the arena. Sometimes military, uh, but often athletic. But the idea is serious struggle. So this is a call to action. Jude's telling the church to get off the sidelines, to get involved in contending for our faith. That much is clear. What's up for debate, though, is just how this contending gets worked out in our lives, in the church, and in society. Right? We'll come back to that. So the urgent need for this contending, he tells us up front in verse 4, is due to these some people who slipped in. I like the way that the New Living says, wormed their way in. Secretly, they're hiding their true motives. These are not the innocent bystanders in the church that are in danger of being led astray. These are the foxy loxies, okay, licking their lips. Their desire is twofold. First, Jude says, They want to turn God's grace into sensuality. What does that mean? The NIV says they want to pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. So in other words, they're twisting God's grace into an anything-goes mentality about sin. Well, God loves us, so do whatever you want. Secondly, they denied Christ as Master and Lord. Now, this is in keeping with what we'll see throughout the letter. Jude's repeated uh, use of the word ungodly or godless, which again is important because these false teachers in Jude's day, and certainly the false teachers in our day, aren't walking around with signs blinking neon letters that say false teacher, right? These false teachers weren't going around saying, there's no God, so do as you please. What are they saying? They're taking the truth of Scripture and they're twisting it. Maybe just a little at first, but they're twisting it to get God's people to stop honoring Christ as Lord. These enemies that Jude is speaking of are not those outside the church without Christ living in sin. That's what we expect from the world, right? These are those trying to come into the church and corrupt the truth. We can't overemphasize this enough, I think, today, especially in our current age of outrage when everybody seems so poised and ready to pick fights and identify who our enemies are. We're looking sometimes, I think, for scriptural justification uh, to be jerks. And the book of Jude does not give us that justification. That would be a misreading of Jude. So let's briefly walk through this next section. Now that we see Jude's purpose, we see his heart for the church, here he's going to lay out some, some past examples of God's judgment being carried out, and then he's going to return to some, uh, some of the present situation of what these false teachers are trying to do. So uh, look down at verse 5. I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling He has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Stop there for just a minute. At first glance, this might just seem like ranting and raving, right? Fire and brimstone. 
He's just on his soapbox. But Judah's being very deliberate here. He's taking some truth that they knew, past examples of God's judgment, and he's bringing it into their present situation, drawing parallels. First, he goes back to Israel's wilderness wandering. They were delivered from Egypt, but then there were many who were unbelieving, who turned against God, and they were judged. He turns to the angels themselves who turned against God. They await final judgment in the future. Then, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that archetypal example from the Old Testament of God's judgment on those who turn against God in rebellion. These are some, some, some harsh examples, you could say. So the chicken littles in the church today who go around saying things are worse than they've ever been, the sky is falling, sometimes just need to open a history book. Or they need to hear what Jude is saying here. I like uh, Paul's, Paul Harvey's words, they come to mind here. In times like these, he said, it helps to recall there have always been times like these. Now, don't get swept up with nostalgia for the good old days that just weren't as good as we like to think they were. Instead, we're called as believers to focus on our present day situation, to serve God now, to walk with God now, to be a light in our culture today, remembering that Christ is coming back to set all things right. And now look at verse 8. With those examples that Jude has given us from the Old Testament, now he's got some, we could say, some choice words for these false teachers. Watch, though, how he weaves in more examples to make his argument. Look at verse 8. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. There is so much here that we don't have time to cover. Uh, but take some time this week. If you have cross-references there in your Bible, you can look at a concordance and just look at some of the passages that Jude weaves through here to make his point. And now he turns from this strong string of Old Testament examples to another string, but this time it's a bunch of metaphors to describe these enemies of the truth. Look at verse 12. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Come on, Jude, tell us how you really feel, man. Don't be shy. This word for dangerous reefs is used only here in the New Testament. Uh, sunken or hidden rocks that, you know, the, the sea looks calm, it looks safe to sail, but it, there's shipwreck waiting because of those hidden rocks. That's a fitting image for these teachers. In, in later Greek, this word became more of an idiom for blemishes, and that's how some translations have it here. Whatever Jude intended here, it's not a compliment. I think we can get that from the overall context. Is that fair? It's not a compliment. But all these metaphors point to things that promise one thing 
but deliver another. If you look back through these clouds without rain, trees without fruit, these false teachers are promising a whole lot and they're not delivering any of it. It's all a lie. Let's keep going. Verse 14. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Wow. Um, Just in scanning through that, you might remember Enoch from the book of Genesis. And if you're familiar with Genesis, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, where does that prophecy of Enoch show up? Well, not in Genesis. Um, Jude is quoting the apocryphal book of Enoch here, and that gives some people heartburn, right? The question is, if Jude is quoting a book that's not accepted as canonical scripture, should we accept Jude as canonical scripture? What's going on here? That's a good question, but it misses the point. Uh, Remember Paul, he quotes pagan philosophers. Paul quotes directly pagan poets. Is Paul saying that those poets were inspired of the Holy Spirit? No, but Paul's use of those words in Scripture is inspired. Jude's use of Enoch's prophecy here is inspired, right? He's taking a piece of writing that was familiar to his readers, and he's using it to teach truth. That is what Jude is doing here. Again, there are so many things here that we just have to skim over, but I wanted us to read the whole thing to get the big picture. This church was in serious danger, if you didn't catch that from Jude's tone, from these deceivers trying to sneak in and lead believers astray from the apostolic truth of the gospel. This message isn't popular. Jude didn't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it today, but it's timeless. The church in every age faces this danger. So Jude is calling us to wake up, to look around, to see the dangers around us, to recognize what's happening, to contend for our precious faith. Because in every age there are those twisting the grace of God. There are those denying the Lord as our master. In our day of political correctness, turning God's grace into license is still alive and well, isn't it? Reducing God's love to some watered-down version of man's love, where sin is not only condoned but celebrated. In the world, this idea is expected, but we have to be careful when we see this creeping into the church. Jesus is still in our day reduced to one way to God among many. The truth is often reduced from capital T truth to a, well, I have my truth and and you have your truth, whatever that is supposed to mean, right? Again, we should not be surprised that that's happening in the world, but we need to watch out for that coming into the church. Because in the church, we have one faith that's been entrusted to us, this apostolic teaching. We can disagree on all sorts of secondary issues, but we have the core doctrines, the core teaching that has been passed down to us that we have to remain unified around. We could apply so many of Jude's words here to health and wealth preachers of our day who promise a lot but deliver nothing. Stealing from God's people so they can finance their own private jets. 
They're liars and wolves. We need to be vigilant against the dangers of the prosperity gospel. As we read and reflect on the book of Jude and what he's saying, I think we can easily see many other things in our day that fit this description. Think of Christian nationalism. This one is extra sneaky because it uses Christian language, Christian-sounding good words, to reduce the faith that was entrusted to us. Uniting it with a partisan agenda. Seeking power in the world at all costs instead of submission to Christ as Master and Lord. Christian nationalists misuse scriptures. They like the ones about Jesus overturning the tables. They like the ones like misusing Jude here to contend for the faith. But sometimes these scriptures are used as a cover for worldly desires and attitudes. This perspective makes enemies of the wrong people. Like Chicken Little, Christian nationalism distracts the church from the real danger that we face. But what about this contending? What about contending for the faith? Isn't Jude calling us to stand up and fight? Well, let's see what he has to say about that. Look at verse 17. But you, dear friends... Can we all just take a collective sigh of relief? Do you see this tone change? How dramatic this is? Before, what all this whole string of words before were to the foxy loxies, right? Now he speaks to the church. Now he speaks to God's people with words of love, with words of affection. Dear friends. So let's look at his admonitions for us. Just how it is we're supposed to go about contending for the faith. How do we live Christianly in light of the dangers around us? The very real dangers. Verse 17. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit And so first he says, remember. In light of everything I've just told you, church, dear friends, he says, remember what the apostles said, what the prophets said, what the Lord Jesus said. In the world you will have acorns falling on your head. It's a paraphrase, right? Because we shouldn't be surprised, in other words. We shouldn't be surprised this was going to happen. We knew it all along. Verse 20, but you, he repeats it again, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Next he says we're to build ourselves up in this faith he's been talking about. This is our responsibility as disciples of Christ. To resist false teaching around us ultimately by immersing ourselves, devoting ourselves to truth. To immerse ourselves in the Word together, in worship, individually, in time with God, in our Bible studies together, in our commitment to community, doing life together. These are all ways that we build ourselves up, that we build each other up in the faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit, he says. Jude tells us to stay centered in prayer. 
to contend for the faith, we have to stay centered in prayer. Because this contending, he's saying, is ultimately not a human work that we can achieve, that we're supposed to go out in the world and do in our own strength, but only in prayerful dependence on God. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we walk in the flesh, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. The church needs to hear that message again and again today. Ours is a spiritual battle that depends on prayer. Then he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That might sound strange a little bit to us. He's not saying that we earn the love of God. He's not talking about our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That much is clear. Do you remember how he started the letter? He says that we are called, we are loved, we are kept. We are kept. Here he's saying don't turn away from the love of God by your conduct, by your beliefs, and the way that the false teachers are doing. Don't be like them. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then Jude says we're to be waiting expectantly for the mercy of Christ. No matter how bad things get here and now, again, this is to be expected because the kingdom is not of this world. We live in a fallen world as a light while we wait expectantly for Christ to return. Now Jude loves his sets of three again. So look at verses 20 and 21 again. Look how they capture faith, love, and hope, those core Christian virtues. And his formula here for Christian living is grounded in the Trinity. Do you see that? Father, Son, and Spirit. And this mercy isn't just something that we wait for. It's something we've received and Jude is calling us to show to those around us. So again, let's not misread Jude and pick the wrong enemies. What's he say? Verse 22, have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, part of our contending for the faith is not only our own devotion to the truth of Christ within these walls, but reflecting the mercy that we've received to those outside. Those who are wavering, those who are considering uh, false teaching, those who are in the process of maybe being led astray. Jew says they need to be lovingly shepherded back. We need to show them mercy. We need to shepherd them back to Christ. Even those who have turned off the path and seem pretty comfortable sitting in the frying pan, he says, rescue them. Don't abandon them or condemn them. Rescue them. Show them mercy too. This is how Jude unpacks this contending. Not fighting unbelievers to advance an agenda in this world, but keeping ourselves, building each other up in the Trinitarian faith that's been delivered to us, that's been entrusted to us. Reaching out in love and reflecting the mercy that we've received. That's, at least how Jude tells us, we're to fight the spiritual battle. Not in our own strength, not, but on our knees. Not throwing stones at the wrong enemies or writing fiery rants on social media. That's not how we fight the spiritual battle. 
but maybe inviting somebody you disagree with out for coffee, listening to them, sharing the love of Christ with them, praying diligently for them. With all that's wrong in the world today, with all the dangers facing the church specifically, what, what is your default flesh response? And maybe it's to sink into discouragement or despair. Things are just getting worse and worse. Things will never get better. There's no hope. Maybe it's to get wrapped up in worry or anxiety. Maybe it's to run around like Chicken Little and spreading your fear to everybody else around you. Maybe it's to go on the offensive against people who need Jesus Christ. Jude's letter cuts through all of those fleshly responses and guides us into the faith, into the hope, into the love that we have in Christ. He doesn't pull any punches, right? We need to be alert to these very real dangers that still face the church, just as they faced the early church. To remember soberly the fate of those who stand in opposition to Christ, but to show the mercy of Christ to all who will listen. Contend, contend for the faith. Let me close just by reading these final words of Jude's letter. Probably the most familiar in the whole book is how he ends it with this beautiful benediction that anchors us again in Christ and who we are in Christ. Christ is the one. Remember, we're called, we're loved, we're kept. Christ is the one who keeps us. Christ is the one who protects us from danger. We are his. It's Jesus that we are waiting for expectantly to make all things right. Look at verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this short but powerful teaching from the book of Jude. Would you help us to heed the call of this book? Help us to wake up to the very real dangers that are facing us today. Wake us up to how Jude teaches us to contend for the faith. Would you free us, Father, from despair? Free us from anxiety. Free us from fear. These things don't come from you, but they come from the world. Free us from anger. Free us from rage that drives us to fight the world's battles in the world's way. So, Father, would you anchor us ever more deeply in Christ, that we might be freed to reach out and to share the mercy that we've received for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.